0: Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factor Magri, I have the second part of my interview with Rob Morrison from Pure Advantage. We are talking about ETS settings and the impact a forestation is and will have on New Zealand. Well, Firstly, I asked Rob if he can see any incentive for large emitters to make real change with the current ETS settings. Have a listen. And what about incentivising real change from large emitters? Where is the incentive currently? I can't see any.
1: No, um, well, that's right, and and even you know, James Shaw admitted that recently. You know, that he, he admitted we're, we're the only ETS in the world where um, allowing the sort of offsets the offsets that we do so I think I think at the moment for New Zealand to be cre- credible on the global stage we have to have an ETS that meets the global science and and the whole idea of allowing polluters to offset their pollution globally is increasingly discredited so, it won't make sense for us to have an ETS that allows that. At some mm. point, New Zealand's going to have to sit there and say, we run out and tell the world how good we are, how clean and green we are. That's what our, all of our commodity marketing um, programs have been based on. And mm. what a wonderful place we are in terms of looking after the environment. But if we run an ETS that global science the global community look at and say well that's a horse's ass then then we completely undermine our credibility in Mm. terms of being a serious player in the space and so you know at some point we have to change that we have to change the dynamic um and and it it goes back to the point you you asked earlier is how do we incentivize the planting native forests one of the things that that we have wrong at the moment is that there is not enough science around carbon sequestration. And one of the things that Pure Advantage has done, working with Tane's Tree Trust, is to go and do the science on this. And what we know is that is that the party of natus and their ability to sequester carbon is the equal of Pinus radiata, certainly after 50 years. With pines, because they are genetically modified and they've been modified to grow quickly, then uh, they sequester carbon more quickly earlier. But it's but they stop sequestering carbon when they stop growing. And so after they reach sort of peak growth at, at, at sort of 30 or 40 years, the, the tables start to change. And and uh native trees, particularly our potter carps, as they grow. They, start sequ- they, they continue to sequ- sequester carbon and we get more and more. But one of the anomalies we have in, in, this, in, in, our, in our schemes at the moment is that because of the original Kyoto Accord and the, the fact that we had to draw a line in the sand in terms of a start date, mm. we have regenerating native forests all pre-1989 that are sequestering massive amounts of carbon. So mm. if you go to Northland, you have regenerating totara, 70, 80 years old, which are which are sequestering enormous amounts of carbon, mm. but they don't sit in any scheme. Mm. So mm. we do need we do need to incentivize. And I think the simplest thing for the government to do, and, and the government's got a, a looming liability coming up, and we should briefly talk about that. Um But the easiest thing for the government to do is incentivize the planting of native trees on, um, on farmland, on iwi owned land, um, in, in a similar way to the ETSs. So if if you, if you said the government will take all the, will take the risk on this, but if you went to, to landowners, to iwi and said, we'll pay you two and a half thousand dollars a hectare to plant and look after regenerating forests or native forests or new forests on your land. Mm. Somewhere akin to where the ETS currently sits at the moment turns upon Australia. But Mm. the government keeps all those, it's at the government's risk and the government um, uh, keeps keeps any of the credits. There's no credits that, that the individual farmers have to worry about. And you can do that outside the ETS. You don't have to sit down and try and redevelop um, the, ETS, uh, the ETS, which is which is complicated anyway, mm. but at least you, you you then level the playing field in terms of the economic incentives for doing this. But what we do know then is that you're starting to line up our planting with the actual problem. So we start creating and generating forests that are going to be storing carbon for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that's what the planet needs. Mm. Not not short term. Mono monocultured trees that that will fall over.
0: Mm.
1: So, what's the incentive for the government to do that? So, yeah, well, the, the, the incentive, I think. Sorry. No, you go. Yeah. The incentive is Glasgow and our commitment in Glasgow. So, on, on our in, um, uh, on our NDC, our nationally defined contribution, um, James Shaw went to Glasgow and we we set a new admissions reduction target for 2030 and personally i don't think there was a lot of thinking that went into that i think we were embarrassed about the fact that new zealand was going to glasgow we our emissions profile wasn't changing in fact it was getting worse uh, again that was undermining this clean and green image that we like to portray to the world so we went we went to glasgow banged out a new target and then went wow okay how are we going to pay for that And and pretty quickly, everyone understood we we were going to be about a million tonnes of carbon short by 2030 on our current emissions profile. But instead of really coming back to New Zealand and saying we're going to have to go hammer and tong to reduce our emissions, pretty much the cop-out was – to meet the shortfall of our million tonnes, we we will buy foreign credits for that. So we will go to the Californian scheme or the European scheme Mm. or some other scheme yet to be invented and buy offsets that New Zealand would go and spend that money. And remember when the the Prime Minister, James Shaw, came back and said, this is a binding commitment. Mm. Now, the problem with that binding commitment is I don't think any taxpayer in the country is going to be happy about any government going out there and spending 10 to 12 billion dollars depending on what the price of carbon is globally to to buy those offsets and that and that's what the price would be at the moment roughly roughly 10 billion but it could, could be more you went on the OECD forecast it's going to be closer to 20 20 mm. billion dollars so no one's going to go hey that's a smart idea let's go and do that so we, we have a liability because the Prime Minister and the Environment Minister, Conservation Minister, said, mm. um, hey, this is our binding uh, commitment. You go into tre- Treasury statements, there's there's nothing sitting there. So you go, well, hold on, we've got a contingent liability here. If you're a company, you'd sit there and you go, we've got a $10 to $12 to $15 billion contingent liability in our accounts, but there's nothing in the Treasury accounts. There's nothing in the New Zealand government accounts for this. Mm noted as a potential but actually the reason there isn't any anything in there is because treasury says it's not a binding commitment so we go to glasgow and we make this commitment and then we come back we look at our books and we go actually it wasn't really binding mm. Mm. but morally and eth- ethically it has to be for new zealand's credibility it has to be so how do we spend that money and in I would argue that that's the money that you take and you start deploying that to um, expedite the growth of native forestry across New Zealand. And that becomes the offset to this unfit for purpose ETS that we currently have. And I, and I, I think that's entirely feasible, entirely possible, and entirely practical in terms of getting moving on that.
0: I completely agree. Look,
1: this going from. Um, um, Tim Flannery. Well, I, I heard him speak the other day. And um, we're t- talking, you know, it's a bit depressing hearing him speak. So t- Tim is um, great conservationist, but he's a client change scientist. And looking looking at the rate of growth of, of carbon into the atmosphere and even post-Glasgow, what, what the likely scenarios are for global warming. And, of course, at Glasgow, the idea was that we would, hold or the commitments at Glasgow would would help hold glo- global warming to about 1.5 degrees in, um, post the, the industrial average, uh, pre-industrial times, 1.5 degrees of warming pre-industrial times. And in, um, in Glasgow, the commitments would, if, if people fulfilled them, if governments and, and countries fulfilled them, would see us warm to somewhere between 2.4 and 2.7 degrees. So Mm. it's currently about 1.2. So it's about at 1.2. And Tim's question, which I I think is absolutely right, and this is what we all need to look at, and certainly those who who argue against um, using native forestry and continue to be proponents of pinus radiata and carbon sinks is, at three degrees of global warming, what's your money and your land worth? And I think for those who argue about the expediency of of short-term gains with things like Pinus radiata. And for government officials who won't change the ETS settings, settings, who don't get round to changing these settings, even though it's urgent that we do it. For those who continue to let us um, plant massive industrial scale monoculture plantations, At some point, you go, what's the value in all that? And what's all that worth? Because if we reach three degrees of warming, money is worth nothing. Your land is worth nothing. That's pretty much the end of society as we know it. So we have to make really significant changes now. And a lot of the pathways that we're following are not going to be significant, they just aren't, they are not the solution to the problem.
0: The Climate Change Commission has essentially come out and said ETS settings need changing. What do you think they are going to now recommend to the government, if anything?
1: Well, I, c- certainly the, the Climate Change Commission ha- were much more focused, or have been focused, on the planning of, of, of native forestry. They, they also acknowledge to a degree that um, it's, it's slightly slower but I think I think the big things around the ETS, as as I mentioned earlier, is that one, um, uh, you you have to change the lookup tables. If, if we mm-hmm. continue with the ETS, you have to change the lookup tables so that native forestry uh, is is a viable option and that's encouraged. You have to include regenerating um, uh, scrubland, um, riparian land, and so on. Um, it, it's got to be done in a way that incentivizes the um, 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 incentivizes planting but also incentivizes the way people look, look after after that land i think the the, the whole um, uh, ability for polluters to Offset on a one-for-one basis, their um, uh, emissions has to change. I think I think that's that's an absolute nonsense at the moment, and and I do think I mean the the, the government is acknowledged has acknowledges that we're out of line on that. I, I just think that 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 globally the international science is is weighted um, against carbon offsets. And it's certainly weighted against plantation forestry for, for carbon se- sequestration. Um, there's huge weight now of international science coming out around the fact that that um, plantation pa- plantation forestry is, is is not the solution uh, to this to this global issue, and and you know, New Zealand sort of stuck in a in a 90s time warp. We have to change out of it. And and so the only way to do that is to change the ETS settings because that's the driver at the moment.
0: Mm. And as a farming and food-producing nation, and of course close to 50% of our emissions come from agriculture, but as a farming nation where other nations simply aren't uh, farming to the same degree, do we have to accept that we will have have higher emissions than other nations?
1: No, I don't think we have to accept accept that. I, I think we do have to do more about it. So, but I, I think again that if, if you looked at, um, um, if you say, say you went back to to a standard farm and you looked at it, and you said um, um, what or, or, or how how do we balance that? Mm-hmm. I, on almost unless unless you're sort of prime land and in the Waikato flat land, um, you know, most farms and certainly most hill country farms have areas of the farm which aren't suitable for farming or it's not overly productive. Mm. And I think what we need is a mixed model uh, in terms of farming. I think most mm. farmers understand this now mm. where you go, okay, well, let's get going on that. Let's take, take that land, retire it, and we'll plant that in native trees. Because it's, this is just not about our generation, which is – where most of the forestry seems to be focused. This is about our children and our grandchildren. So mm. if we take, if we take that unproductive land, the marginal land, and say, let's plant that into, into native forestry, we're then reducing the problem that our children and our and our, and our grandchildren are going to face. Um, because it's not so, if you are planting the wrong tree, if you if your focus is trying to reduce carbon sequestration, then, sorry, to increase carbon sequestration, then then pick, pick the right tree to do that. Don't don't try and solve this problem in the next 20 years because we've got artificial deadlines. You, you we have to plant trees that are capable of absorbing and, and sequestering carbon for years and years. And, and there's a really important element on this too, is that a plantation is not a forest. What we know in terms of diversified forests of sustainable forests is that an enormous amount, probably up to 20% of their carbon sequestration, is in, 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 is in the ground. It's, it's in, in the humus, in the ground, it's in the soil. And, and you don't get that in plantation forestry. You don't. So, But also, plantation forestries don't regenerate. Yeah. You, you, If you cut them down, you have to replant them. Uh, if you leave them, they die. So you, you have, we, we, have to build sustainable forestries. You can't simply sit there and go, Hey, the economic return to me is such that in the next 30 years, I'm going to make a whole lot of money. And then, wow, that's still someone else's problem at the end. And I think the more accurate description for, for carbon farming, particularly when it comes to the use of, of exotics, mainly Pinus radiata in permanent carbon sinks is, is, it's it's carbon mining. It's it's mm. not farming. It's 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 mining, and and they will mine mine those trees until the trees are no good, and then that's someone else's problem.
0: Rob, I thank you very very much for your time today.
1: You're welcome, Angus.
0: We have regenerating native forests or pre nineteen ninety forests in this country that are sequestering an extraordinary amount of carbon, but not being recognised because of an imaginary line in the sand we have every right to be aggrieved about this we have been fleeced as i said last week we need a long-term plan that will actually deliver results regenerating native vegetation will have the ability to sequester carbon essentially forever not only are monoculture exotic forests negatively impacting rural communities by consuming good food-producing country and locking up large areas of land, but these exotic carbon sinks, or mines as Rob called them, are a pollution dumping ground for multinational polluting corporations who don't need to make real changes to how they operate. That is not good enough, and change needs to happen now. Tick tock. January 1 is not far away. Well, That's all for me this week. Thank you for listening. And catch you next time.